From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. In today's podcast, treating submacular hemorrhages. Everybody has a different way of, of uh, treating these cases. There's nothing like a general um, consensus. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month. But the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Here's a truism. The greater the number of therapeutic choices, the less effective any particular therapy is. The number of extant therapies for submacular hemorrhage speaks to the difficulty of treating this condition, both acutely and over the long term. Joost Hillenkamp recognizes this and introduces us to a combination of medication and surgery designed to address some of the shortcomings of older techniques. And I'm happy to welcome Dr. Hillenkamp to As Seen From Here today. What is the typical etiology of submacular hemorrhage in clinical practice? Well, the most frequent cause of acute submacular hemorrhage, especially in in elderly patients, is um, neovascular AMD. Um, Other causes that are less frequent are ruptured arterial macroaneurysm connected to uh, uh, hypertension, high blood pressure, and uh, traumatic origin. Those are the three uh, most frequent causes. And by far the most frequent cause is um, CNV and AMD. What complications arise from non-treatment and how quickly do these complications present? Well, there are clinical studies in the literature from the 1980s that have um, studied the natural cause of uh, submacular hemorrhage, especially in AMD, and the results are dismal because all of these eyes end up in a macular scar. So so the untreated cause is, is bad. How quickly do these complications, like the scar, or as you mentioned in the paper, yeah. I wouldn't call it a complication. I'd call it uh, uh, the natural yeah, cause natural of the disease. Sure. The natural cause of the disease, well, that varies. It may take weeks or months, but it will invariably be the end result. What treatments have been proposed prior to your study for submacular hemorrhage? Well... There are several treatments that have been proposed, and interestingly, there is no general consensus among the community of uh, retinal surgeons or ophthalmic surgeons in general. Treatment modalities that have been proposed include um, injection of a gas bubble into the vitreous and then face-down position and injection of RTPA, recombinant tissue plasminogen activator, together with a gas bubble into the vitreous. Another treatment modality has been vitrectomy and 
fluid gas exchange and injection of RTPA solution into the vitreous cavity. And um, I think in the 1990s, it was first introduced to operate and inject RTPA during vitrectomy subretinally and then perform a fluid gas exchange. So that's one way of uh, uh, treating this condition. And <clears throat> other ways have been investigated in the submacular surgery trial. That is also vitrectomy and surgical CNV extraction. And uh, this study has shown that <clears throat> when the CNV is surgically extracted, the results are usually just as bad as the natural course because invariably you will extract the RPE and the macula along with the CNV. And last but not least, um, a surgical option is vitrectomy, CNV extraction, and autologous RPE patch translocation, which has been reported in the in the last few years. And the result of this technique is also usually limited. I mean, only a minority of patients achieve five-meter visual acuity. Just for the sake of clarity, what is recombinant tissue plasminogen activator, RTPA? RTPA is an enzyme which promotes the transition of plasminogen to plasmin. Well, it activates the transition of plasminogen to plasmin and thereby uh, dissolves um, blood clots. It has been used for treatment in, I think, myocardial infarction and stroke. As you say, RTPA is an enzyme. So the question is... It's a protein, yeah. It's yeah, an enzyme, it's, it's a, protein. a protein. Right. Sure. The, the, the question that follows then is when RTPA is administered intravitrally, how does it get yeah. to the site of the clot? That's exactly the reason why we, or not we, why others have started in the 1990 to inject it subretinally because RTPA as being a protein, it's a relatively large molecule which and its size exceeds the experimentally determined um, molecular uh, size exclusion limit of the retina. So it is questionable whether or not RTPE will diffuse through the retina to reach the clot when you inject it into the vitreous cavity. Now, having said that, although the size of RTPA exceeds the molecular size exclusion limit of 60-something kilodalton, there have been studies done in the monkey uh, with uh, bevacizumab, avastin, which also exceeds the molecular size exclusion limit. And yes, as we all know, Avastin does diffuse through the retina. So probably RTPA, or we don't really know, but it, it is likely that RTPA also diffuses through the retina. But because it's so, such a large molecule, it probably does as a, at a slow rate. And the other reason is that <clears throat> the, the blood clot under the retina might alter the diffusional properties of the retina. So one way to, to make sure that RTPA and the solution reaches the blood clot is to inject it into the subretinal space. What was the rationale behind adding bevacizumab to this regimen? Um, as I've pointed out, already 
10 to 20 years, 15 years ago, the idea has been tested to inject RTPA under the retina during the trectomy prior to a fluid gas exchange. But now, since the advent of anti-VEGF substances such as bevacizumab, um, this has added a new aspect to the treatment of uh, these hemorrhages before. And the question now is, how are we going to apply the anti-VEGF substances? Are we going to inject it into the vitreous after surgery or before surgery? And uh, the idea in our study was, since Avastin, similar to RTPA, is a large molecule that probably diffuses only slowly through the retina, and maybe it doesn't even do so if the clot somehow prevents it from diffusing through the retina, to make sure that Avastin reaches the underlying cause of the submacular hemorrhage, namely the CNV, to make sure that it reaches the clot, let's inject it subretinally. And um, that's why we did the study. Joost, what was the purpose of your study? And if I can get you to describe the design of the study. Well, what we did is that we have tried this was the rationale behind the surgical treatment. <clears throat> and we have performed the surgery in two or three patients with um, uh, bad prognosis, where we felt no matter what we do, whether we extract the CNV or we try to do a subretinal lavage washing out the blood or we only inject RTPA, the outcome is highly likely to be dismal. Let's try this treatment modality and we did and the outcome was surprisingly good and then we obtained <clears throat> approval from the local ethics committee and um, operated during the last year um, 12 patients and because we were surprised of the positive outcome we felt we should report it as soon as possible in the meantime we have operated more patients and but we felt it, it's interesting to the community to communicate these results also because nobody has shown before that RTPA and bevacizumab together would be tolerated in the subretinal space. I mean, it would have been conceivable that um, there could have been a drug-drug interactions or RPE atrophy, and none of this occurred, and the results were quite promising. Yes, can I get you to walk me through the actual surgical Absolutely. procedure? Um, the procedure itself is actually technically not difficult. Um, we performed um, a standard 20-gauge vitrectomy, although you could also do it as a sutureless vitrectomy. Um, we operated concomitantly uh, the lens in standard phacal surgery in all patients because all of these patients or the majority of these patients are elderly people who will not want to be operated on repeatedly. So um, most of the surgeries were combined with FACO. But the vitrectomy itself is straightforward, 20-gauge vitrectomy, three ports, um, induction of a posterior vitreous detachment, and then we... Um, uh, punctured the retina somewhere away from the fovea, obviously, with a 27-gauge Teflon cannula and injected into the subretinal space a bubble of fluid. Um, 
And firstly, we injected 0.05 milliliters of the RTPA solution, which contains 10 micrograms of RTPA uh, dissolved in 0.05 milliliters of BSS. And then we repunctured the retina at the same uh, at the same spot and injected 0.05 milliliters, which contains 1.25 milligrams of bevacizumab, also in the subretinal space. And this, it's a total volume of 0.1 milliliters, which is quite a lot, and it leads to a dome-shaped elevation of the retina. So care has to be taken to slowly inject, but interestingly, there's, there's no reflux from the injection site, and the, the solution um, it dissolves um, the blood clot, and I think that is one of the reasons why the operation worked well in um, uh, shifting the blood to the side, because the blood gets the blood clot gets liquefied and dissolved by the uh, by the BSS solution, and then the gas bubble can shift it to the side, can displace the hemorrhage. What were your results? What were your findings? Our findings were that, in, as I said, we, in our article, we have reported the first 12 patients. In the meantime, we have operated 24 patients. And in the great majority of patients, um, the operation was successful in the sense that the blood clot was completely dissolved and had disappeared at the follow-up visit four weeks after the operation. And it almost always works. And surprisingly, we have also operated three or four patients with large hemorrhage that extend beyond the, the arcades and which are quite prominent. And also in these patients, um, the operation was successful because the uh, subretinal hemorrhage was completely disappeared four weeks after the surgery and so we have achieved <clears throat> some very nice results in quite a number of patients achieved reading um, ability. Obviously, the functional outcome, um, so you have to judge this operation by two factors. A, the anatomical outcome. Do you succeed in displacing the hemorrhage, yes or no? because displacement of the hemorrhage is the prerequisite of functional recovery because if the hemorrhage <clears throat> stays where it is under the fovea, then with time it will invariably damage the foveal photoreceptors. So this is the displacement of the hemorrhage is the prerequisite for functional um, recovery. And that worked in, I would say, in uh, 8 or 90% of all cases and complete displacement, not only shifting the blood a little bit to the side, it, the blood clot had completely disappeared. Uh, the, the, the functional out, long-term outcome, obviously, is determined by the size, the extent of the CMV. The best outcomes are clearly achieved when a fresh, newly new CMV, which is small, has led to the submacular hemorrhage. Other patients presented that had already been treated two or three times with um, Lucentis, for instance, 
with a large CNV that is already beginning to, to turn into a scar. In these patients, clearly the functional outcome must be limited. So it, it depends on the size and the extent of the damage that has already occurred by the underlying disease. What adverse events were observed and were any of these adverse events attributable to either the RTPA or the bevacizumab agents? Yeah, interestingly, we have not observed any adverse events caused by RTPA or bevacizumab or by um, the, the, the mixture of the two drugs in the subretinal space. So we were relieved that we did not find four weeks at four weeks follow-up any signs of RPE atrophy or uh, retinal damage. I mean, the, the um, favorable functional results suggest that the retina and the RPE tolerate um, the injection of both drugs together in the subretinal space. It's not a proof, but it's highly unlikely that there is a toxic effect. Otherwise, our results would not have been as good as they are. Adverse, there are adverse events, however, related to the surgical procedure. Um, it has to be um, taken care not to inadvertently puncture um, RPE detachments. So during surgery, when there is a submacular hemorrhage, <clears throat> then it is, I would recommend to puncture the retina somewhat at the margin of the macula where you can clearly see that there is blood under the retina but no RPE detachment because the submacular hemorrhage looks brighter than and where there is an RPE detachment, it will be dark because the RPE uh, shades the light. So that's one, uh, it happened to us once that we punctured an RPE detachment, which of course leads to an RPE rip. Um, another <clears throat> possible adverse events are related to vitrectomy, such as retinal detachment. Then macular hemorrhages might recur, especially when patients are on systemic anticoagulation. For those patients who obtained a functional benefit, how do you distinguish the visual improvement attributable to the retinal surgery from the improvement attributable to the cataract extraction, which was performed at the same time? I can't clearly um, tell the difference but all the patients the first of all the patients the first 12 patients that we operated all of them had relatively clear lenses i mean age related normal lenses we mainly removed the lens because we felt that at their age they would not want to be reoperated again and we know that vitrectomy accelerates the progression of cataract formation but uh, as i remember none of the patients had advanced cataract. So I think the contribution of the cataract surgery um, to the overall functional improvement is more or less negligible. Clearly, in this condition, there's the risk of recurrence. How did the recurrence rate in your study group compare with the rates reported in previous studies? The recurrence rate is relatively similar to other studies and I think it is surprisingly low considering the fact that 
now that we've operated more than 20 uh, more than 20 patients i would say that more than half of the patients are on anticoagulation be it aspirin or cumarin derivates <clears throat> and considering this fact that many of them have to recontinue the anticoagulation after surgery and many of them also have high blood pressure the recurrence rate is relatively low but yes it does occur it does reoccur especially when anticoagulation is restarted so we would recommend that if some patients are on anticoagulation without really needing it so what you should do is check does this patient really have to be on anticoagulation if not discontinue it if um, the internists feel this patient must be on anticoagulation then it's advisable to um, try to, to stop the anticoagulation at least for a certain period of time until the CNV scar has regressed from the anti-VGF treatment before you restart the anticoagulation because I would think that a CNV which has regressed is less likely to bleed again. So if possible, stop the anticoagulation for several weeks. Just what do you do in your practice now? Do you perform this procedure on all AMD submacular hemorrhage patients? Well, we at the moment, we perform this procedure as described in the article on patients with submacular hemorrhage uh, that is not older than two or three weeks. And submacular hemorrhage is that involve the fovea. Sometimes there is a CNV under the fovea, and the hemorrhage occurs somewhere at the margin, at the rim of the macula, outside of the fovea. And I think in this case, I would not operate, but go ahead with standard um, intravitreal lucentis treatment. But if the hemorrhage is not too old, and the pa especially patients that report having good visual acuity before the onset of the hemorrhage, I mean, the hemorrhage comes on quickly, instantly. And we, I asked the patients, how was your visual acuity before this hemorrhage occurs? And if the hemorrhage <clears throat> is, the history of the hemorrhage is less than two weeks and the patient tells me, I've been able to read the newspaper before this hemorrhage occurs, then I think this is a good candidate. And many of the patients are in a, um, a desperate situation because um, it is often an only eye situation and they already have a macular scar in the other, in the fellow eye, and then they present to our practice and report sudden loss of vision and all of a sudden visual acuity is completely gone and they're desperate. And that's why we're very happy about the positive results with this technique. How late after the onset of the hemorrhage does this procedure remain a viable option? That's difficult to say. I can't really answer these questions from having operated 20-something patients, but I would say at least up to two weeks. But that's not really a problem in clinical practice because most patients will come to see an eye doctor much sooner than two weeks. From from my judgment, in there are patients with with AMD patients with acute submacular hemorrhage, with rather small hemorrhages. Let's say the hemorrhage is one to two disc diameter size. In these patients, 
I am not sure whether these patients need surgery at all, but in a small hemorrhage, the hemorrhage might reabsorb and dissolve with Lucentis treatment, intravitreal Lucentis injections only without surgery. They do very well with this surgery, with the procedure that I've described, but I'm not sure whether patients with small hemorrhages need a surgery at all. Now, on the other hand, there are patients with very large hemorrhages that extend beyond the temporal arcades and prominent hemorrhages. And in these patients, I have been surprised that this um, technique led to good results. And I think that one should absolutely try this technique with or without Avastin, but subretinal injection of RTPA followed by fluid gas exchange because all other surgical treatment options pretty definitely leads to rather limited results. For instance, subretinal lavage of the hemorrhage and CNV extraction with or without patch transplantation. And if you perform the surgery that we have described with subretinal RTPA injection, and in case your patient returns after three weeks, once the gas bubble has dissolved and you find okay, this, the surgery failed, the hemorrhage is still there, then all other surgical options such as CNV extraction with or without RPE patch are still an option and you can still do it. But I think it is absolutely worth a try to discontinue the anticoagulation if possible, perform this surgery and inject SF6 gas which um, dissolves uh, quicker than um, C2F6 or C3F8. And after two or three weeks, you will know is the surgery a success or not. Having performed this preliminary case series, and also because there is no general consensus among the retinal community of retinal surgeons, and I've made this experience at several meetings now when we presented these results, and the discussion clearly shows that all the retinal surgeons, everybody has a different way of, of uh, treating these cases. There's nothing like a general um, consensus. And the next step should be to perform a prospective randomized trial. And we have done a um, sample size uh, calculation. And to compare subretinal, for instance, subretinal versus intravitreal injection of RTPA, the minimum number of patients to distinguish a moderate difference of effect would be somewhere around 130 patients. And that, of course, is a study which would require several centers and would be difficult to, um, to, uh, to perform. Because I mean, I mean, this doesn't. I mean, this doesn't happen so often. We in our hospital, we see approximately one to two cases per month. Joost, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure and my great honor. Joost Hillenkamp is privatdozent at the University Medical Center Schleswig-Holstein in Kiel, Germany. His paper, Subretinal Co-Application of Recombinant Tissue Plasminogen Activator and Bevacizumab for Neovascular Age-Related Macular Degeneration with Submacular Hemorrhage, appears in the November 2009 issue of the British Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Hillenkamp or any of our previous guests 
or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As seen from here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.